0: You are listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. To learn more about Central Sanford, including our gathering time, visit us online at centralstanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. James chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning, James chapter 1 and verse 13. I hope that you are doing well in your memorization of James chapter 1. And don't forget you're supposed to do that. That's your challenge uh, this month. Well, let's stand as we read God's word in James chapter 1 <clears throat> in verse 13. The Bible says through James, James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire when it conceives, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, and of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His Preachers, you may be seated. You know, this morning we're talking about temptation. Last week we talked about trials. And I don't know about you, but whenever I'm in a passage of Scripture myself personally, uh, it seems like whenever I'm studying something, it's, it's like God wants me to learn those things. So about eight weeks prior to starting this sermon series, I think I've gone through a crash course in trials. And one of the things that I found is that there is a difference between trials and temptation. James here makes that nuance that there's a difference between trials and temptations. And let me just give you what these differences are. A trial is a trying circumstance or a difficult situation that is allowed or orchestrated in our lives by God. So these are trials of your faith. If any of you, maybe this week, just want to testify, you can say amen. Have you gone through a trial this week? Amen. Amen. Now, trials are different than temptations. What is a temptation? A temptation is an invitation to sin or an encouragement to do something contrary to God's law. Now, just think about this at the surface. Trials are outward. They tend to be outward circumstances. Temptations are inward. Now, one thing I want you to understand, that within the trial, there often is a temptation. So when we go through difficult situations, when we go through trying circumstances, there seems to be within that that trial a temptation. And that temptation ultimately is, am I going to trust God or am I not? So James here, as he's flowing through, he's talking about the trials of our faith, and now he's going to deal with this issue of temptation. And I think that the tenor of his message is actually found in verse 16, where he says, do not be deceived my beloved brothers. And the reason why is because when it comes to trials, when it comes to temptation, especially our temptation to sin, there is a tendency to have a lot of deception, a lot of self-deception when it comes about God and when it comes about ourselves. And because we have a tendency to be self-deceived, we fall prey to temptation rather than deal with temptation. So here is the message this morning right here on the text. And I want you to Get this in your mind as we walk through this this morning. Number one, or notice this, is that we can trust God in our temptations. Because what is is often the temptation within our trials? It's to trust God or not. We can trust God in our temptations to know that He is not the cause of them. But that He is the only cure for overcoming them. So let's look at three things this morning as we walk through our texts First thing I want you to see is the cause of temptation. Who is responsible for my sins? You know, sometimes we feel like that we're set up. Sometimes when we fall prey to sin, we feel like, you know what, this was just something that I couldn't control. This is a situation that I just found myself in, and it seems like that I'm not really the one to blame. But James here is going to say in verse 13, he says, let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God. Now, this thought is this, is that when we're going through temptation, the natural reaction of our sinful hearts is to run our mouths. As soon as we fall into temptation, we become defensive. We begin to blame shift. And the reason why is because we're all natural-born self-justifiers. It is normal for us to want to blame someone else for our problems it's a normal thing it's the philosophical approach of it wasn't me I don't know who it was but it wasn't me I mean you see this in children you you walk by and you see dishes with stuff in them and you see a mess in the kitchen and you look at the kids you know it wasn't you You look at them and they say, was it you? And they'll say, no, it wasn't me. We tend to blame. And the reason why is this, because we don't want to feel bad for the stuff we do. We want to feel good about what we do. So James says, let no one say, because we have this tendency, when we have fallen to temptation, when we have made a mistake, to want to start running our mouths. He says, but one of the things that you cannot say is that you're being tempted by God. Let no one say when he is being tempted that when he is going through some sort of temptation, a, 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 uh, an invitation to sin, that, that God is the one who's setting you up. Now, the reason why James is saying this is because, one, the ancient pagans of the Roman Empire, those who worship other gods, they blamed all their problems on the gods. And these Jews who are now scattered throughout all of the Roman Empire have potentially adopted this view of God that if you are struggling with problems, if you're going through tough hardships, and, and you're sinning and making mistakes, then the person you're to blame is is God, because God, the gods of the, the Roman gods were, were were spiteful and they were they were mean spirited and capricious. But but not only just this whole idea of the Roman pagan uh, philosophy that the gods were the cause of your problems, but but just it's endemic a part of. Humanity, because as soon as Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, what did they do? They begin to blame people. Adam, as a matter of fact, God says, "What did you do?" and Adam says, "Well well, I basically sinned, but the reason i 've sinned is because of this woman, this woman that you gave me, so it 's really your fault. Now you may say this morning, well, you know what pastor that 's awful good, but i 've never blamed God for any of my mistakes i 've never blamed God for any of my sins. You may not do it explicitly, but if you're not careful, if you really think about it, you'll do it implicitly, implicitly. And here's, let me give you an example of how. If you have ever said, you know what, if I had this in my life, then I wouldn't have done that. I've had people come, you know, if I had a better spouse, I wouldn't be so irritable. Or if I had a better job, I wouldn't be so badly in debt. Or if I had better parents, I wouldn't have made the mistakes that I've made. And you say, well, I'm not blaming God there. I'm I'm blaming my parents. I'm blaming my job. I'm I'm blaming my spouse. But, But what I want you to understand is that whenever you and I look outside of ourselves and point to the different kinds of circumstances in our lives, we are indicting the very God who brought those things into our lives. Because we're subtly saying this, God, if you had given me a better job, God, if you had given me a better spouse, God, if you had given me better parents, I would be a better person. So in other words, God, the reason that I am what I am is because you brought this into my life. So therefore, God, it is your fault. My condition, my circumstances, my personality, my life, my genetics are all blamed on you. God, you made me this way. And what does James say? He says, stop it! <laughs> you cannot say when you are tempted and when you fall to temptation that God is the one that did it. You cannot blame God as the cause of your problems. And the reason why is this. Because God cannot and will not ever tempt you to sin. Notice what he says in verse 14 here. I believe in the text that he says, uh, verse 13, let no one say when he's... Pardon me, verse 13, if, you'll, if you can find that on the slides, I'm not sure. There it is. Let no one say when he's being tempted, I am being tempted by God. Why? Why never say that God's the one who did it? James is going to give us the answer. For God cannot be tempted with evil. God is untemptable. It is absolutely contrary to his nature to tempt anyone with evil, because God is not himself tempted by evil. Sin and evil have no attraction to God like it does to us. So God, being absolutely, utterly pure and holy, is untemptable. There is nothing that you could put before God that would ever tempt him, because he is God. And so nothing tempts God, so therefore God himself tempts no one. God does not seduce or attract us to sin because it is the exact opposite of who he is. And you think about this. If God was going around tempting you to sin, his temptation would be irresistible. Cuz who can resist God? So James here says let no one say when he is being tempted, i am being tempted by God. And the reason why we tend to blame God Is because we have mistaken what Tim Keller says. We mistake the cause of our sin with the occasion of our sin. And Keller will say this. He says, you know, when a teacher gives a test, the test that the teacher gives is the occasion. The purpose for the test is to see what is in the mind of the student. So if the student fails the test, it's not the teacher's fault. It's not the test's fault. It's the lack of studying by the student. So the test is the occasion. It's not the cause. Have any of your kids ever blamed their teachers for their bad grades? Or have you, when you were in school, said, You know what? It's their fault. The system is rigged. They gave me a test that I knew about. But yet in that moment, I wasn't really able to think clearly. So it's the test fault. If I hadn't have had that test, I wouldn't have gotten an F. You're blaming the test and not yourself. You're seeing that the test is the the cause, not the occasion. And James is saying, listen, the trials that come of your faith are the test that God sends in your life. But the test that God sends in your life and that you have the opportunity to pass or fail, if you fail it, it's not God's fault. Because that's not the cause of the failure, it's the occasion for the test. Are you all trekking with me this morning? So what James is saying is this. He said you can't blame God. So then the natural question we're going to ask is this. All right, James, if I can't blame God, who can I blame? So many of you right now are saying, well, I'm going to blame the devil. I'm going to blame the devil. He did it. He caused me to do it. But here's the problem with that. That's not what James is going to say. Verse 14. Now we go to verse 14. Here's where James says the problem lies. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. James says it's not God above you. It's not the world around you. It's not the devil outside of you. It's sin and evilness in you. In your evil heart. We are not merely the products of our environment because the cause of sin is within us. John Owens, the great Puritan, said that the seed of every sin is in every heart. So every evil thing I do, every evil thing I say, reveals the condition of my heart. That's what James is getting at. You can't blame God. You can't blame others. Now, does that mean that others may not lead what's inside of you to come out? Absolutely. But you can't blame them. Jeremiah said it this way. God said through Jeremiah that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. You have a sick heart. Everyone in this room is born with a defective heart, a heart that pursues evil, a heart that pursues sin. Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 15 verse 19, he'll say, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. It's out of the heart these things come. So James says you cannot blame other people. The cause of sin is found within you. Jonathan Edwards in his great book uh, *The Bondage of the Will*, and it's a very pithy book, and I've not read it much of it because it's so hard to understand. But I've read enough and got enough other. I kind of got the reader's condensed version, you know, like the cheat notes. And basically, Jonathan Edwards says this: He says we are free to choose what we most desire. Free will means that we only do what we most desire to do. So if we sin, it's because we most wanted to do it. So we can't blame others. It's because we most wanted to do it. We are our own worst enemies. No one else is to blame For our personal sin. Now, I know some of you say, well, what about the person who grew up in an abusive home? What about the person who grew up and they were sexually abused? Or what about the person who lived in this particular situation and that particular situation? And I want you to understand that there are external circumstances that, that feed the sinfulness of our own heart to condition us towards certain things. But at the end of the day, we're not robots. At the end of the day, we are not inhumane. We are human beings who have the potential to say yes or to say no. And so, yes, there are external circumstances that may lead to a heart condition where it is harder to say no to certain things. But the ultimate culpability and responsibility is us. So let me get to the second point. We not only see the cause of temptation, but I want you to see the course of temptation. How does temptation become sin? Now, first off, it is not a sin to be tempted. Amen? I need you all. Are you all with me this morning? Amen. Yeah, I need some help this morning, man. I need some help. This lets me know that you're alive and you're well. And listen, if you're going to sit and listen, you might as well participate, right? So it's not a sin to be tempted, but temptation can lead to sin. So how does that happen? And James tells us. He gives us some very vivid metaphors. They're, they're, and you know, As you read this, they're, 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 and, and, and I know we may have younger ears in here, but they're sexual metaphors. Just notice what he says here in verse 14. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when you get to verse 15... He says that, 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 that desire conceives, so use the words conception, and gives birth. These are all anatomic type things of, of thinking, just anthropomorphic language of these metaphors of, of basically this is how temptation happens. It's a process. It's a process for how temptation turns into sinful behaviors and sinful attitudes. And what James is trying to use, teach us through these metaphors is this. This is, this is kind of, if you think this through, it's going to really change how you view temptation. That sin is more than breaking God's rules. Sin is breaking God's heart. Because sin is spiritual adultery. It is finding satisfaction in the arms of another other than God. Let that get into your mind because that's language you find all throughout the Old Testament. When you read the writings of the prophets, when you read books like Ezekiel, I'm in the book of Ezekiel right now, and when you read Ezekiel and he talks about how Israel was going out and and, and playing the role of a prostitute and going to this God and going to this nation rather than trusting God, that's what sin ultimately is. It's more than breaking God's rules, it's breaking God's hearts. It's finding satisfaction in the arms of another other than God. So in verse 14 he says, Each person is lured. And enticed. In other translations, it may say dragged away. These are both hunting and fishing words. And here's the thing. He says here, if you'll go back to verse 14, he says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? Let's say let's, let's say this together so we're all here together. By his own desire. You know who baits the hook? You do. You bait the hook that you swallow. Our evil desires bait the hook. Now, not everyone has the same desires. Everyone is not tempted by the same thing. And not everyone is tempted by the same thing in the same way to the same extent. What I think this teaches us, if you just look at this personal word here, own, is that each one of us is lured, we're we're hooked, Uh, we're, we're, we're enticed, by our own desire, that there's something that's within us that we are predispositioned towards, that there are certain sins that, for some reason, just a part of who we are, that we are predispositioned towards. So there are some sins that you may struggle with that I don't struggle with, and there are some sins that I struggle with you may not struggle with. Y'all follow me this morning? So there are some people in the world who have proclivities or predisposition towards this attraction, towards this sinful lifestyle, through this, that you may not have a problem with. I'll give you an example. If you were to put, uh, if you were to just stack on this little table here, uh, uh, just, just packages of packages of crack cocaine, I wouldn't have any desire for that. If you were, to, if I were to go to the mall, and, and there, there are some things you never have to worry about me wanting to steal. One would be a Florida Gators t-shirt. You never have to worry about me wanting to steal a Florida Gators t-shirt. I'll tell you something else. You would never find me ever trying to steal Taylor Swift concert tickets. You you can just shake that one off. I ain't going to do that one. There are just some things, now now there are other things, and I'm not going to describe them to you, but there are some things that if you were put on that table, I would be tempted to do. I'd be tempted to, to be after. Each and every one of us in this room has those things. You know in your mind, this is what I would really struggle with if it were right there. And James says, listen, you are lured and enticed by your own desires. Now that word desires, this is a big thing. Uh, again, I, I defer back to the writings of Tim Keller because he's the one that really helped me open my eyes in his book, Counterfeit Gods, which is one of the best books I've ever read in my entire life. So there's your, a recommendation. He says that the word here, and the, it is not just he, but what the Greek test, the New Testament says is this is the word epithumia. Epi means overthumia. Have you ever heard the word thermos? We get the word thermos from that. Heat keeps heat in. So it's, it's to overheat. Literally what the Greek, Greek word means is to overheat. So each one of us is lured and enticed by our own over-desires or our own overheat, that we get hot and heated up for different things. So he says the reason that we sin is these sinful desires lure us and allure us and entice us. And, And I want you to understand that sin and desire is not necessarily that we want bad things. Most desires that we have are not evil. Not every desire that you have is evil. But I want you to understand that every desire that you have has the potential or capacity for evil. Because the issue is not that we want bad things. The issue is that we want them too badly. So our over-desires, these epithumias, turn good things into bad things. Let me give you some examples. A desire for food. I like food. How many of y'all like food? Say amen. I love to eat, man. I love love the Food Network. (laughs) My wife yesterday made homemade Oatmeal cookies that had the little cream filling on the inside. It was good. But a desire for food, when it's turned too much, turns into gluttony. A desire to make money. There's nothing wrong with a desire to make money. There's nothing wrong with wanting to provide for your family, amen? But an over-desire to make money turns into greed. A desire for comfort. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have rest, but an over-desire for comfort leads to laziness, a desire for sex and sexual intimacy. There's nothing wrong with it. God gave you that desire, but when it is over-desires, it turns to perversion. It turns to adultery. It turns to fornication. What, what, what August, actually, what Martin Luther said is the problem that we have is not our desires, Is that our desires are disordered. That we have these things that we think are so important, and they're way above what God says is important, and these over these disordered desires lead us to sin. So what James here is saying, I gotta hurry up, is he says in verse 15, he says, here's what happens with the sin thing is that these epithumias, these over desires, what happens is, is that they have a baby. It conceives. We're going to walk through this in a second. I'm going to give you about six words to help you understand this process. That It conceives, and it gives birth, and the birth uh, that comes from desire, desire has a baby, and that baby is sin. And here's the thing. The desire not only has a baby, the baby has uh, has a child too. Desire has grandchildren. Because sin, when it's fully grown, when it grows up, it brings forth. Same kind of word for conception there and, and giving birth brings forth what? Death. So the grandchild of desire is what? Death. So the love child of sin is an ugly baby that grows up and murders its parent. That's what James is saying here. Sin is a fatal attraction. It will thrill you and then it will kill you. It will fascinate you and then it will assassinate you. And what you have is this formula, desire plus opportunity leads to disaster. This morning, reading in 2 Samuel chapter 9 about David and Bathsheba. David was supposed to be out to war. He didn't go do what he was supposed to do. He stayed at home, played Xbox. He got tired of watching college football and playing Xbox. He went out on the roof to walk around. And while he was just kind of doing nothing, he saw this woman down below bathing. She was out in broad daylight, and he liked what he saw, and he lingered. And that's where the desire happens. You see, that's, he saw that, and it, that desire, what happened? It led to sin. He ended up having an affair with Bathsheba. I, I think, actually, if you read he raped her, but that's just me. And after that sin happened, it, it fully grown, and guess what David did as soon as he knew that, his, that Bathsheba was pregnant? He says, let's get her husband there because, you know, she was, she was married. And let's call Uriah, who was one of his mighty men. And he says, Uriah, I need you to go. You need to go home and hang out with your wife, if you know what I mean. And Uriah wouldn't do it because Uriah was a better man than David. And Uriah refused to do that. So what did David end up doing? He sends orders to Joab and basically says, have Uriah killed. Do you see that David... Desire turned to sin, and that sin turned into death. And guess what happened to the baby of Bathsheba and David? It died. Sin always kills. A desire for success will kill your body because you'll overwork. A desire for love will either kill you if you're rejected or will kill the other person because that other person doesn't meet all your expectations. An over-desire for control will kill your relationships. And an over-desire for acceptance will kill your integrity and your happiness. There's a cycle in sin. Let me give you this cycle. I don't, know if it's gonna, I don't think it's going to be on the screen, but I want you just to write these words down somewhere in your notes. Here's the cycle. First, it starts with an attraction. It starts with desire. Sin is always an attraction first. Then that attraction leads to the next word, Deception. You think that you really need that. You think that that is what's going to make your life better. So that attraction leads to deception, and that deception leads to a preoccupation. You fixate on it. You linger on it. You you think in your mind how much you need that in your life. So it's attraction, deception, preoccupation, and that leads to conception, the sinful behavior. That sinful behavior grows to an addiction. See, sin is first an attraction before it's ever an addiction, and you are then enslaved to it. And that addiction leads then to desperation. You feel helpless and hopeless that you'll never overcome it. You all tracking with me this morning? Some of you that are struggling with sin, that's that's the cycle of sin in your life. That it starts with an attraction, then it leads to a deception, then a preoccupation, then it conceives, you do it, and then that conception leads to an addiction, and that addiction leads to desperation. And right now, you're sitting in your pews, and you're thinking of all the sin that you've committed this week, all the struggles that you have in your life, and you're saying it's hopeless. Well, it's not hopeless. Because there's a cure for temptation. How can I resist temptation number three? He says in verse 16, do not be deceived. You will never, this is a good word, please let the Holy Spirit put this in your mind, that you will never overcome temptation if you're blaming other people. You'll never overcome temptation if you blame God. You'll never overcome temptation if you blame the devil. You'll never overcome temptation if you blame someone else. You cannot play the victim. And the reason why is because you're the abuser. You cannot play the victim. You're the abuser. So so James says, don't be deceived. Don't be in denial. Take responsibility. But there's another deception. Not only denial, but there's also this deception of despair. Thinking that you are so bad that there's no hope or power to overcome your sin. That's another deception. Deception. He says in verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Then he goes to verse 17. I love verse 17. It's one of my most favorite verses in all the Bible. He says every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. Amid our trials, amid our temptations, we tend to get amnesia. We forget in the midst of whatever we're going through how bad we really are. That's why James says you can't be in denial of how bad you are. You're bad. But even more, not only in the midst of our trials do we forget how bad we are, but in the midst of our trials and temptations, we forget how good God is. Because the antidote for deception is the truth. See, if you and I are ever going to overcome temptation, we must trust in the truth of the absolute, unchanging goodness of God. This is a word. Write it down. This is a word. You need to write this down. I'm not saying I'm inspired by God, but this is a word all of us need to hear this morning. Regardless of what the temptation is, you must know that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the sin. He's better. He's better in who he is. Verse 617. He is the father of lights. The creator of the universe, including the sun, the moon, and the stars. When he uses this word, Father of lights, it is speaking of his sovereignty over all of his creation. That he rules and reigns over every corner of the universe. Do you understand that we do not serve a God who has to watch the news to know what's going on? He makes the news. He knows everything that's going on. And yet, He cares for each and every one of us. He knows your name. When you're going through a trial, He knows your name. He knows your problems. He knows your propensity towards sin. He knows and He has interest in you. And He loves you. And He cares for you. And He knows you. And you can call Him Dad. You can call Him Dad. That in the midst of whatever hell you're going through, you can call out to your daddy and say, Daddy, help me. And he's there. And the reason why we know he's always there is because what James says, he says, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He doesn't change. He's simplified. He's always faithful. He's dependable. He doesn't change. Theologians call this the immutability of God that God is unchanging in his being, unchanging in his perfections, unchanging in his purposes, and unchanging in his promises. He says of himself that he's unchanging. In Psalm 102, verse 25, the writer says that you are the same and your years have no end. God said through Malachi, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Everything in this world changes. You change. You change your clothes. You change your hair. You change your diet, your age. You get older. Do you know that today you're older than you've ever been? You've never been older than you are right now. Your attitudes change. Your, your, your taste buds change. Just a few years ago, you I'd be caught dead eating a beet. Now, I like beets. And probably next time i to like prunes. And the next year I'll be drinking prune juice. Who knows? I'm getting older. We change. Our happiness changes. How many of you are always happy all the time? We go up and down. God never changes. It's not just a cliche that we say around here God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. He's not fickle or flaky, He doesn't go through phases. And he doesn't choose favorites. He's consistent, faithful, and he's trustworthy. He's better than anybody else. He's better than any false god. He's better in who he is. Secondly, he's better in what he gives. He's better in what he gives. Every good and perfect gift, everything and anything that is intrinsically and comprehensively good, is from God. Think beyond just the gift of life. Think beyond the gift of family, beauty, food, and fun. Aren't you thankful for your family and for and for life and for fitness and for food and for all those things are great things. But There's even greater things. Look at the gifts that God gives us. The gifts of love and mercy, forgiveness and grace and joy and peace in heaven. He says in verse 18 that of his own will, of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. You want to know how good God is? James says, you want to know how good he is? You're born again. You're saved. He took you from the bondage of your sinfulness. He saved you. And he says it was his, it was his will. In the, in the Greek it literally means of his own will. It's a middle voice. All of your salvation is rooted in God's absolute goodness. He loved you enough that he did everything necessary for you to be right with him. So that he says that he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a first fruits of his creatures. The first fruits in the Old Testament were that which belonged to God. Set aside to God. You realize that you and I are gods. He's a good, good father. See, here's the thing about God. God gives, gives, and keeps giving. What does sin do? Sin takes, takes, and continues to take. God gives life. Sin brings death. Sin promises life, but it can't deliver. You know what sin does? Sin leads to broken lives, broken families, broken marriages, and broken hearts. So how can I overcome temptation? It's when I understand that Jesus is better. He's better than pornography. He's better than alcohol. He's better than a sports team. He's better than my anger. He's better than my greed. He's better. He's better than my beauty, better than my fame. He's better. A couple weeks ago, uh, I was talking to a, a, a football player with, with Seminole High School and built a relationship with him and ended up asking him. I said, you know, I knew he was a, a, a Christian or it was, you know, we, we'd come to that place where he shared with me. And, and so I asked him, I came up to him and I said, hey, how's your walk with God going? How's your walk with the Lord going? And he looked at me and he's like, what do you mean? And I said, how's it going? And he says, It's a struggle. Is any of you, you don't have to say anything? Is that a thing for anybody? I mean, it's a struggle. He says, that there, he says that there are things that I know I shouldn't do, but that's what I find myself doing. It's a struggle. Can I get a witness on Helen? And he says, "I want to know, Pastor, how can I deal with that?" And I said, "Well, you know, a lot of things that we do in life, we do because of, or we do or don't do because of fear. And for many people." Maybe even you this morning, the reason you don't do some of the sins that you do is fear. You're afraid you'll get caught. You're, You're afraid of the consequences. You're afraid of what could happen. Some of you are afraid of God. And I'm not telling you that's a bad reason to not do stuff. Sometimes I just want my kids not to do it because they're scared of the consequences. Nothing wrong with that, right? But I told him, I said, you know what? I found in my life that the best motivation... To obey God is not always fear. You know what I found it is? It's love. And I gave him this example. And listen, all examples don't always work how you want them to work. But So some of you may poke some holes in this example later because, because what I'm going to describe to you may not exactly fit. But here's what I told him. I said, you know, when you truly love somebody, when you love somebody, A little sting coming out this morning, And you know that other person loves you. And you're satisfied in that love. You you see what I'm getting at? When when you love them and they love you and you're satisfied in that love, you do things and don't do things because you love them. And I told him, I said, listen, I'll give you my example. I said, I love my wife. My wife loves me. We've got a good relationship. God's been good to us. That love for her has grown over the years. and, And I'm satisfied in that love. And I said, you know what? Because I'm satisfied in that love, I do not struggle with ever cheating on her. He looked at me and said, really? I said, now I'm not telling you that there's not temptation. There's temptation out there, but I don't struggle with that because I'm satisfied in in, in that love. I'm not just not going to cheat on her because I'm afraid that if she found out she would kill me. Because she would. But the reason that I don't is because I love her and my love for her is stronger than my desire to cheat on her. That's how you're going to overcome temptation. Yes, for some of you, you may have to radically mortify sin. Be killing sin before sin kills you. You may have to throw away the computer. You may have to set up accountability partners. You may have to do all those things. And None of those things are wrong. As some of you, it may just be a little fear of God that may be good to keep you from foolishness. But what's going to sustain you Is love for God. Listen to this psalm. Psalm 97 verse 10. It should be on the screen. He says, Oh you who love the Lord hate evil. You don't hate evil or sin by sheer willpower. The only way you could ever love the Lord and hate evil is by God's power. By being reminded and changed by the good and perfect love of God That he gives you every day, and when you reflect on that every day, you choose in that day Jesus over sin. And it's got to be an everyday deal. It's almost got to be an every minute deal. In my life, there are times that I get tempted, and I have to remind myself Jesus is better. I love Jesus more than I'll ever love. That's junk. You have to show your soul that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than material wealth because money can't buy him and death can't take him away. Jesus is better than relationships because his love never fails us, never gives up, and never runs out. He walks in when everyone else walks out. Jesus is better than sexual freedom. Sexual sin enslaves The freedom it promises results in painful chains of regret. But Jesus breaks our chains and gives us true freedom with a love that's beyond compare. Jesus is better than beauty and fame because Jesus is the only one who saw how ugly we are and yet died to make us beautiful. He restores our dignity and he gives us approval that ultimately matters. Jesus is better than comfort. Because Jesus left the comfort and ease of heaven to enter into the brokenness of this world to offer those who believe true and lasting rest. I want to end with some good news. Some of you that are in despair and you think and you believe that your life is too far gone, that you are too addicted, that you're too messed up, that you're too beyond the grace of God, I've got good news for you. Let me give it to you. In Romans chapter 3. Verse 23, the Bible says, say this with me, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You say, Pastor, how's that good news? It's good news because you know what this tells me? The standard that God compares me with is not with other people. It's with Himself. You know, so many of us, we sit around and we think we're hopeless, we're beyond beyond hope because we compare ourselves to other people and we think we fall short. Well, if you think you fall short compared to other people, see how you compare with God. When you and I, regardless of who we are, regardless of what we've done, regardless of how good we think we are or how bad we think we are, when we compare ourselves to God and His glory, we all fall short. It's just like if we were to come out this afternoon and say, all right, we're going to go to New Smyrna Beach and we're all going to jump to England. You get one jump. It's physically impossible to jump to England no matter how strong you are. If you and I, I don't care if you're strong, if you're a CrossFit or or a, a long distance jumper, whatever, regardless of who you are, if we go to New Smyrna Beach and we try to jump to England, all of us will drown in the Atlantic Ocean or look like fools trying. Because all of us, compared to jumping to England, it's impossible. And us, compared to God, we fall short. We are so short of God's glory. There is no one in this room who has any standing with God, regardless of who you are. But I've got the good news. And that's Romans 5, verse 8. But God showed His love to us. And that while while we're still sinners, what did He do? He died for us. Here's what you have to understand. That the Father of lights is that His goodness is greater than your badness. That His grace is greater than all your sins. So whoever comes to Jesus for forgiveness will be forgiven. And the reason why is because when we were still sinners, he died for us. Some of you in this room, you say, you know what, I cannot be forgiven. You don't know what I've done. I can never be forgiven. When you say that, you are not exaggerating the size of your sin. What you're doing is you're shrinking the forgiving power of God. Some of you in this room, you say, I cannot forgive myself. Therefore, I can never be forgiven. If you say that, what you're saying is that your opinion matters more than God's opinion. Because Jesus was tempted and yet without sin. He passed the test when we failed the test. He died on the cross. He paid for all of our sins. And if you come to him in faith, he will save you, cleanse you, forgive you forever. Amen. Because he's a